Well, good morning. I'm glad that you are with us this Easter morning wherever you are. And if you're joining us at the 10 a.m., glad we're together right now. Or if you're watching this later and participating later, I'm glad uh, you were joining in. And Christ Central is a church that exists for the glory of God and for the good of our city. Uh, we are a community of people that desires to see uh, all of our people delighting God, rest uh, in his grace towards us, embrace one another, serve our city, and to seek a renewal movement uh, by his spirit. It goes without saying that this is quite a different Easter than we've ever experienced. And so I'm hopeful uh, that whether you are new to Christianity or coming back to Christianity, or you've been a Christian for a long time, that this coronavirus is forcing us to examine our faith more than ever. And that this Easter, as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, all of us might be filled with hope. Those of you who are newer to Christianity, maybe you're asking questions around Jesus and around faith now. Uh, we want to encourage you to, to be honest about where you are in your personal journey of faith. Please feel free to ask your questions. We invite you to, to come back to be with us. We're so glad you are with us. For those of you who would call yourself a Christian, I wonder where you are this morning in light of a book that was published last year in 2019. The book is called Faith for Exiles. The authors, David Kinnaman, Matt, uh, Mark Matlock, and Allie Hawkins. Uh, David Kinnaman is the president of the Barna Research Group, which studies cultural trends as it relates to values, beliefs, attitudes, and behaviors. And this book takes an in-depth dive of where 18 to 29-year-olds in the U.S. who grew up in Christian homes find themselves now in relation to faith in Christ and the church. And they came up with four categories of people. The first category they titled prodigals or ex-Christians, uh, those who no longer call themselves Christians. And they said 22% of the population identify this way. The second, they termed nomads or unchurched, people who call themselves a Christian, but they don't go to church. 30% of the population identified this way. The third category they, they called habitual church goers. These are people who attend church cons consistently, though it's often a rotation of churches. It's not a commitment to one church. And 38% identified this way. And one interesting note about this group is that half, 50% of this group, do not agree with many of the historic faith claims around Jesus and Christianity. And the last group, uh, they termed resilient disciples. These are people who seek and experience intimacy and relationship with Jesus on a daily basis. And they said 10% identified this way. I think those are staggering numbers. And though this is a study of 18 to 29-year-olds and it's a smaller sample size, I believe that these categories are helpful for all people in their identification to Christianity. This is why I mentioned this. Because every single one of you who are worshiping with us this morning, you find yourself somewhere along the spectrum of not a Christian, not raised in the church, never raised around Christianity, but you're interested enough to join a worship service this Easter. So maybe you're asking questions around Christ and Christianity and the gospel. Or you're an ex-Christian. You grew up in the church, but you decided somewhere in life to chuck your faith in Christ that you no longer believe. Or you're unchurched. You grew up in the church. You still say you're a Christian, but maybe now you're leery of the church. 
There's a, there's a distrust of the institution of the church. Maybe you're a habitual churchgoer. You're a Christian, but you bounce around churches. You attend worship with some consistency, but you're not really committed to one church. Or maybe you're what they termed a resilient disciple. You desire to walk with Christ daily. You long for deeper intimacy with Jesus. You depend on him in the whole of your life. I wonder how you might identify yourself this morning. My prayer this Easter is that this global crisis has in a good way shaken us out of our spiritual slumber and is forcing all of us to examine our faith and the claims of Jesus with new perspective. There is no greater claim of Jesus than the resurrection. It is the linchpin of the Christian faith. Everything revolves around the truth of the resurrection. This morning, we're going to look at an apostle's response to the resurrection. That at first glance, you might wonder, why are we going to spend time with a doubting apostle? But I believe doubting Thomas, as some of you might know him, is one of the greatest gifts that God gives us in his scriptures. For many of us this morning, might not be feeling very resilient. But I pray that we leave our time together with a deeper desire to daily walk with Jesus in intimacy and dependence. So I'm going to ask you to turn with me to John chapter 20. And we're going to look at verses 24 to 31. This is God's word to us this morning. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The prophet Isaiah tells us that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray together. Lord, I ask that you would speak to our hearts, that you would illumine our minds, that, Lord, we would pray, Lord, we believe, but Lord, help our unbelief. Would you now take the word of God and plant it deep within so that we might leave strengthened and renewed, Lord, wherever we come in this morning? Maybe we've never believed. Maybe our, maybe our belief is, is wavering uh, God, wherever we are, would you lead us to see Christ and to experience Christ and to confess you as Lord and God. I pray that you would take the words of my mouth and that you would minister now to the meditations of our hearts that we might be pleasing to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Well, the Harvard Business Review posted an article a few weeks ago that has gone somewhat viral. The article's title, That Discomfort You Are Feeling is Grief. That discomfort you are feeling is grief. That every single one of us has experienced great loss in the midst of this virus. From the minimal loss of not being able to watch the Masters Golf Tournament this weekend, to the greater loss of not being able to see friends or family, or to the loss of income and financial security, an even greater loss for some, the loss of someone that we love. All of us anxiously anticipate loss in the future because we're just uncertain what the future holds. That discomfort you are feeling is grief. We're all grieving, which is why we're all experiencing a wide range of emotions. We can ebb and flow out of emotions pretty quickly. Uh, can I share with you that this has been a very odd holy week for me? Monday was a low day for me. I was angry much of the day, and I couldn't quite identify why. Tuesday, I felt a little bit better, but later in the day, I became sad. Wednesday, I was thankful and glad most of the day with a twinge of anger. And you get my point. I've been all over the place emotionally, and I've been telling people it feels like I've been riding this emotional roller coaster. It's been helpful for me to understand this as grief. Because in grief, no two people grieve in the same way. And within grief, you can ebb and flow out of the stages of recovery. Healing is not this perfect line. It's not linear. We're all experiencing grief. And grief is exactly what the disciples and the apostles experienced on that good yet horrible Friday. When Jesus was nailed to a cross and suffocated to death. Their whole life was centered on Jesus. He was their Lord and their God, and within hours, he's gone. A painful, life-shattering loss. Three days later, Easter Sunday, Jesus rises from the grave, and he appears to all of the apostles but one, Thomas. Verse 24 tells us that Thomas was not with them. Thomas, in his grief has pulled away from his dearest friends, isolated himself, and is definitely feeling all of his feelings. Now, everyone refers to Thomas as doubting Thomas. Yet doubt is a mild way of saying what Thomas is going through. What we read in John chapter 20, it is stronger than doubt. Thomas didn't say he doubted. He didn't say, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit with. He says in our text, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. This isn't doubt. This is unbelief. Thomas, one of the 12 apostles, life devoted to Jesus, now says, I will never believe. The author of of this gospel, John wants us to know for some reason that Thomas had a nickname, the twin. We don't really know why he was called the twin. Some people think he might have looked like Jesus. We're not sure. Uh, though I, I really like what Dale Bruner says in his commentary on John. He says, I think that the Lord gives Thomas the nickname twin so that we can have someone to identify with. For aren't many of us twins? 
real believers in Jesus and semi-unbelievers at the same time. And And Thomas, if we're honest, we see ourselves. We are a mixed bag of belief and unbelief. We can all identify with the man in the Gospels who who prayed, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So there's two things that I want us to look at this morning. The picture of unbelief and then the picture of belief. Let's look at the picture of unbelief. We don't know a lot about Thomas. We see him earlier in this gospel in John chapter 11 at the death of Lazarus. There Jesus speaks of his own death. And Thomas in John chapter 11, he says to the other disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. He's charging the other disciples that if if we're going to identify as a follower of Jesus, let us go where he goes. If he dies, we die. Thomas was a resilient follower of Jesus. He wasn't in and out, hot and cold, not a loosey-goosey Christian. Yet here in John chapter 20, the other disciples now come to him and say, we've seen the Lord. But he says, unless I see his hands and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I will never believe. We've got to ask the question, how did an apostle who saw all that Jesus did, raised Lazarus from the dead, multiplied the bread, fed the 5,000, walked on water. How did an apostle who saw all of this get to this point? How did an apostle who heard all that Jesus said get to this point? Well, Thomas experienced his leader tortured and murdered. And in experiencing great loss and deep disappointment full of pain, confusion, disillusionment, did something that everyone listening has done. He enthroned his pain. He enthroned his pain. We enthrone our pain. You know what I'm talking about. The hurt is so deep. Times are so disorienting. So everything must answer to your pain. God, I was happy when I was living with my friends. And now that I've, I've moved and I'm living somewhere else, I feel lonely. So God, you have some explaining to do. God, you better prove your love to me. God, I was, I was enjoying my job and changes happened at my, at my job or, or maybe I lost my job. And so God, you better prove your love to me in this time. Even more painful. God, I loved my mom and dad. I loved my sibling. I, I loved, even more painful than that, I loved my child. And now they're gone. And so, God, you have some things to prove to me. You better let me know how you love me. See, we're all going through this pandemic, and we're experiencing loss, we're anticipating loss, and it's tempting to enthrone our pain and to demand that God answer our pain. God, prove you exist. God, prove your love. This is the picture of unbelief. And thankfully, Jesus steps in and addresses Thomas's unbelief. Look at verse 26. Eight days later, Thomas is now with the disciples. Jesus appears again. He goes through a locked door, and he's standing in the middle of the disciples. Now, I know many people ask, how how in the world did Jesus go through locked doors? We're not sure. We do know that John includes this detail purposefully 
and we know that Jesus' resurrected body looked like his earthly body because everybody knew who he was, but it was a transformed body because he was able to go through locked doors. And Jesus stands right in the middle of this gathered group of disciples, and he says, peace be with you. And then he says, put your finger here, see my hands, put out your hand, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. There are a few things that I want to point out that Jesus did to address Thomas's unbelief and therefore our unbelief, which then leads to belief. So this is my second point, the picture of belief. The first thing Jesus does is that Jesus declares who he is in the middle of the community. See, before Thomas was isolated and alone, he's enthroning his pain. Now he's with the community of the disciples, and Jesus speaks to them. And I think John is being very pointed to teach us something here, that we were created for community and that God speaks to us in community. Part of the pain and grief in this, in this pandemic is, is that we cannot meet in person. We cannot gather together in person to sing and to pray and to read and to hear the word of God preached and to feast on the body and the blood of Jesus. We are unable to be together physically for city groups or just random one-on-one hangouts. One of my favorite all-time TV shows is the TV show Friday Night Lights. I was reminded about a scene in the show this past week that I swear could have been written for us during this pandemic. Coach Taylor is about to say goodbye to his football team for a long time. It's going to be really hard not being together. And so Coach Taylor says this. He says, there is a reason why we got a football team, and that's just not to win games. It's so in difficult times we have each other. Well, this is about as difficult of a time as any of us could imagine. I want us to use each other. Stay in touch as a community. Be there for each other on your phones, on Twitter, on FaceTime, or whatever other kind of crap you use. And you all got my number, call me. I know I usually tell you knuckleheads not to call me on my cell unless it's it's an emergency, but right now, everything is an emergency. You feeling a little sick? Call me. Feeling a little down? Call me. Is that understood? Yes, sir, said the team. Then he continued, "We, we may not be on the field together right now, but we are all in this together. Together, we're going to stay strong. We're going to stand united. We're going to stay healthy. And anyone who thinks we're not going to beat this, they don't know this town. They don't know this nation. And they sure don't know this team. I'll miss you all. Tell your families that Tammy and I are thinking of them. Tell them you're in our prayers. Stay healthy. Stay safe. Clear eyes. Full hearts. Can't lose. Church. In this time where we are physically distanced, we must avail ourselves to one another as much as possible. Do not enthrone your pain in such a way that you remove yourself from others and isolate yourself. Make phone calls, receive phone calls. Write letters. Join a virtual city group. Join us here virtually on Sunday mornings. Do all that you can in order to live in community. We were created for community. And Jesus speaks to us in the midst of of community. Second thing Jesus does to address unbelief and lead us to belief is that Jesus gives evidence that testifies to the truth of who he is. Jesus says to Thomas, see my nail-marked hands? 
You see my, see my pierced side? Put your finger here. Now, we're not sure Thomas touched Jesus. He might have, but, but we don't know. The text doesn't tell us if he did or if he didn't. But Jesus raises his wounded hands, points to his wounded side, and says, Look, touch. Here is your proof, Thomas. In our unbelief, Jesus has given us evidence that testifies to the truth of who he is. We have not seen Jesus, but verse 29 tells us, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed. And the first piece of evidence that Jesus has given us is the Holy Scriptures, the Word of God. Now, if I am the Apostle John, and I'm writing this book, as some critical scholars might suggest, to start and to sustain some man-made movement. In all honesty, I would not include in my telling of this story one of the 12 apostles refusing to believe in Jesus. I would not include one of the main stories that I tell being a reluctant, doubting follower. I would only tell stories of triumph and victory. But John writes about Thomas, which is a huge gift to us. Because God uses his unbelief at times more than the belief of the other disciples to confirm to our minds and our hearts faith in Jesus. Martin Luther said that the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. If you are wavering in unbelief, spend time with the living God in his word. And he will speak to you, and he will lead you from unbelief to belief. The other piece of evidence that Jesus gives us is the history of the church. And the church started as 12 followers of Jesus and has now turned into a 2,000-year-old historic community, billions who have trusted and followed Jesus. And we've got to ask, what would lead most of these 12 apostles who are ordinary people to become missionaries throughout the Middle East and many of them eventually being murdered and martyred for their faith. What would do that? It's because their faith in Jesus was confirmed by their witness of his resurrection. That then leads to within 300 years of Christianity becoming the religion of Rome. And 2,000 years later, Christianity has spread throughout the whole world. And for 2,000 years, the community of disciples have gathered together in large cities and small cities, rural areas, in small numbers and in large numbers, praying, singing, giving generously, listening to the word of God, partaking of the Lord's Supper, and being sent out to be on God's mission to the world. You know, in the Old Testament, God was always faithful toward Israel. In their unbelief, he would always nudge them by reminding them of his past faithfulness. He would often tell them, remember. Well, he says the same thing to us. Remember. Remember, God has been faithful throughout history. God has been faithful through many wars, pandemics, disasters. God has been faithful to countless men and women in the midst of their pain and allow his faithfulness in the past to prove to your heart his faithfulness for the present and the future and believe. Well, the last thing that we see in this passage about how Jesus addresses our unbelief that then leads us to believe 
is that Jesus wants us to own our unbelief for what it is. Jesus knows that this is not just a little struggle. This isn't just a little bit of doubt. He knows this is unbelief. It's why he tells Thomas, don't disbelieve, but believe. He pretty much tells Thomas, Thomas, stop it. Stop your unbelief and belief and, and believe. In, in the counseling world, that's terrible advice. <laughs> you never tell someone to stop it. Right? It reminds me of an old Bob and Newhart skit. Maybe some of you have seen it. Newhart's a counselor, and this woman comes into his office for therapy, and, and, he, and he tells her, I promise you that our session is not going to last longer than five minutes. And she looks quite surprised, and he says, okay, go. Again, she's surprised and, and she begins to share, well, I have this fear of being alive in a box. I start to panic anytime I think about it. And then he asks her, well, has anyone ever tried to bury you alive in a box? And she says, no. Well, he says, I'm going to give you two words. And I want you to take these out of here with you. I want you to incorporate, incorporate these into your life. Two words, are you ready? She goes, yes. He said, stop it. Just stop it. It's funny because a therapist would never do that. You never tell an addict to just stop it. You never tell a married couple who've had patterns of fighting for years to just stop it because there are deeper issues that need to be addressed. But Jesus knows what is happening with Thomas is unbelief, and so he says, stop it and believe. Why? Because it is actually helpful for the living Christ to look at us and to say, quit calling what is happening in your heart something else. Quit calling it being spiritually cold. Quit calling it a little bit of wrestle or a little bit of struggle. Stop your unbelief and believe. See, all of us can be a mixture of belief and unbelief. Our hope today on this Easter Sunday is that the truth of the resurrection can move all of us to a deeper belief. There was an article in First Things, an ecumenical journal, a few years back. It's an article about Tim Keller actually talking about his mixture of belief and unbelief. Tim Keller, who's quoted a lot around here, was diagnosed with thyroid cancer, and he went in for surgery, and after surgery of removing the tumor, he had time to recover. And he said for the first time in a long time, he, he had a lot of time on his hands. And so he picked up the tome of N.T. Wright, this monster book called The Resurrection of the Son of God. Keller, already an extremely popular preacher at this time, I mean, global impact across denominational lines, tens of thousands of listens to his sermons weekly, said in this article that, he said, as I was reading The Resurrection of the Son of God, I was coming to a greater certainty that Jesus really did rise from the dead. He says, it wasn't that I didn't believe it before. Of course I did. I defended it. I preached about it. I would die for it. But there were still doubts. And as I read the book, doubts were taken down. There was a deeper, deeper level of doubt that I didn't know was there. Listen, in the chambers of all of our hearts, we have to own the truth that we have unbelief. And we've got to call it what it is. It's why as I, this week has gone by and I've spent time in this passage that I realized my anger, my short temper, my demandingness, 
was me enthroning my pain and demanding God answer to my pain. It, was, it has been and is unbelief. See, if we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and if we believe that Jesus is bringing a kingdom that will last forever, why do we do some of the things we do? Why do we think pleasure and success and comfort and sex and money and alcohol satisfies us more than Jesus? Because we believe and we don't believe. And so we pray, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And thankfully, Jesus steps in and he leads us from unbelief to belief. Look at the confession of Thomas. It's profound. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. It's a remarkable confession. It's not a surprised response. Oh, my Lord. Oh, my God. It's not a routine liturgical response. You are Lord and you are God. Thomas says, you, you are my Lord and my God. It's personal. It's an intimate confession of belief. It's not just knowledge. It's great faith. Listen to me. Jesus cares for every one of you personally. And he wants you to see his wounds and his pierced side. And he wants you to trust that the wounded one can empathize with your suffering. But this wounded one is also the victorious one who will make every promise of God a reality. For in the resurrected Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen. John tells us in verse 31 that these things are written that you may believe he is the son of God. I know particularly in this pandemic, we are tempted to enthrone our pain and to tell God, prove yourself. The resurrection is proof. It is proof of who he is, what he has done, and what he will do. And if it is true, if Jesus did live, die, and rise, everything depends on it. It's everything. Verse 29, Jesus says, blessed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. N.T. Wright, who I mentioned earlier, he says this. He says, imagine Someone giving you a, a very rare, very unique, very valuable, one-of-a-kind, absolutely stunning-to-look-at painting. Someone gives you this amazing painting, and it's worth more money than you will ever make for the rest of your life. You take it into your house, and you put it on the wall of your living room, and you decide that it's just too amazing to hang in your living room. So you take it to your dining room, and you hang it there but it won't work in the dining room. So you try your family room, same thing. If you have a rec room, you try your rec room, certainly it won't work in the rec room. You try your bedroom, it doesn't work there. And then you realize that you don't have the house that can adequately contain the painting, that you need to build a different house around it. What Wright is saying do not construct your personal world and life view and figure out a way to fit the resurrection into it. But rather, the resurrection of Jesus is the very thing you build your life around. It is the lens by which you view your whole life. So wherever you find yourself today, I pray that the resurrected Jesus is kind and gracious to address your unbelief. That you would see him 
raising his nail-pierced hands and blessing you and saying, peace be with you. And that you might leave confessing, he is my Lord and my God. Let's pray. Lord, I ask you would help us to believe and you would help our unbelief. That we would see the the wounded Savior, and we would see the victorious King, and that we would know in life or in death, you, you rule and you're good and you're kind and you're gracious. So lead us, God, we pray, out of unbelief to believe, to confess that you are my Lord and you're my God. Wherever we are, would you move in such a way to do this? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.